Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 32, 33, and 34. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And then said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. This is God's word. Amen. Oh, wow. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Church of the Redeemer, so good to see so many of you this morning. We continue this morning in our series throughout the book of Exodus, which is a smaller series and a larger series where we're going to be going from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the narrative structure of the Old Testament scriptures and just talking about the story of God as it comes to us through 
uh, these Old Testament scriptures which few of us are as familiar with as we probably should be. And this morning, as we continue in what we've been looking at together, I've pieced together the narrative of chapters 32 through 34 in Exodus for the sake of time and convenience. And I would say you might find it helpful to read the whole thing for yourself later. Uh, but this story in particular in chapter 32 of the golden calf is a very famous story. Most people, whether you're a Christian or not, or you have any exposure or experience in church or uh, very little, would, would know something about this story. It's made its way into our cultural consciousness, which is interesting. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's very important for us to stop and take some time here. Okay? So though most of us are, 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 are somewhat knowledgeable of this story, few of us are as familiar with the rest of the story, chapters 33 and 34, and really as you read it, it all goes together. And so that's why we have it here together before us this morning. And the theme of these three chapters is Israel's sin. Now, one interesting feature of the text is, is this, that to this point in this book, there's been hardly any mention of sin, but in these three chapters, uh, it comes often. And so, um, in, in fact, the numbers are up to chapter 32, there are only 10 instances of the word sin in the entire book, but in chapters 32, 33, and 34, it occurs 11 times. And so this is a condensed part of this story that deals with this theme of sin. And one of the things they teach you in graduate studies in the Bible is when you come across a word or a root like this that's repeated over and over again in a text, you should pay attention to it because it's there on purpose. It's actually a literary technique called a leitvort. I know that's a fancy words they tell you in seminary. You've got to use fancy words every so often to remind the congregation that you know more about the Bible than they do. <laughs> and that's probably not true, but... Uh, it, it, it's an indication that Moses is taking a theme and is very serious about the theme. And so this is a text about sin. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at it. And we're going to see that this text really, I want to come at it along these three headings. And they're the three headings in your outline, if you'll just follow along with me. I want to talk about why we sin, how we sin, and then the cure or the antidote to it. Okay, so Christians believe in sin. And so this morning, this is an opportunity for us to talk about this. Why we sin how we sin, and then the cure or the antidote to this problem of sin, okay? And we're going to look at it under the the headings of impatience, idolatry, and then ultimately glory, because that's what this passage is about. So let's just start with the first thing this passage teaches us about sin, which is where it comes from, or the why of sin. So look there at the beginning again, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. So what you see is what's happened here is Moses has been delayed. He's taking too long, and the people grow impatient. So the, the, the thing behind what's going to happen in this story about the golden calf is this issue of impatience, and that's remarkable to me. And impatience, I want to define impatience just like this. Impatience is frustrated will. It's my will frustrated. It's the emotional reaction that I have when my will is being blocked, when things aren't going the way I want them to, or not fast enough, or someone or something is standing in the way of one of my goals. And so probably the classic illustration for a father of four would be something like it's late at night and I'm tired, it's been a long day, and I just want the kids to go to bed so that I can lay on the couch and watch some TV, or talk with Ashley for a few minutes uninterrupted, and of course one of the kids uh, won't, won't stay in the room, or they keep calling for me to come and see them, and I explode. And I'm trusting I'm not the only one. 
you know, and, and, and what's happening? That's, it's my will. It's my will being frustrated. And what's, what's marvelous to me is that this is a high peak in the, in the Bible and helping us understand sin, and yet it starts with something so small. It's just simple impatience. And that's really helpful because it shows you what's behind all the bigger sins in our lives, the source of all the other sins that we commit, and it's just this. It's my desire to play God. My will be done. And so impatience is my will frustrated. Anger is my will opposed. Despair, discouragement is my will defeated. Pride is my will successful. Self-pity is my will wounded. Anxiety and fear is my will in question. But you see what's at the center of all those things, don't you? What? My will. So the question for us becomes, what am I looking for to get me through life and to get things done? And the answer from this text and from all of the scriptures is, in our natural state, we turn to our own will, my will, my resources, my talent, my sufficiency, my greatness. And so that's the why. Very quick this morning, that's the why. That's where sin comes from, is this issue of of our will and this impatience we see here, which is the will of the people being frustrated by Moses being up on the mountain and taking longer than they think he should. But secondly, let's look at the second thing then. So the second thing this passage teaches us is not only the source of our sin, where it comes from, but also the substance of it or the what of sin. Because what happens here in this passage is not a one-time event. It's an archetypal story. It's a story that explains all sin. And so what we see here, and you know the story, the people collect all their gold and fashion a golden calf, an idol, and they bow down and they worship it. So the what of sin is just this. All sin is idolatry. And Martin Luther, the reformer, in his exposition of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 32, made the observation that the reason we break any of the Ten Commandments is because we break the First Commandment. In other words, underneath every sin... There is the reality that we have put some other God ahead of the Lord, like the Israelites do in in real tangible form here by making the golden calf. We have given our hearts, in other words, our hearts worship and affection to a created thing rather than to the creator, an idol. And so what is an idol? I mean, that's part of what we have to do is define what we mean. We're talking about idolatry this morning. So what is an idol? And so I want to define that term by quoting uh, two guys that have meant a lot to me in many ways, but particularly in this subject. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor, really a prominent pastor in the 20th century in London, he, he said this, he said, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that seems to me central to my life, essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds a, what he called a controlling position in my life. David Powelson Uh, He said it this way. He said, the most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? He goes on to say that the question of idolatry is the question of motivation and lordship. He says it really boils down to this. Who or what rules my behavior? The Lord or some idol? In other words, what or who is providing the motivation or the inspiration for your decision-making in the direction of your life. What are you living for? That's your God. I mean, whatever thing, relationship, desire, 
goal, whatever it might be, that is at the center of your life, you're building your life around it. If it's not the Lord, then it's an idol. And it should be said that there are only two options. Either the Lord, God, is at the center of your life and you're worshiping and serving Him, or the other option is you've replaced Him with some created thing and you're worshiping and serving that created thing, some kind of golden calf. So, if this is true, and what I'm saying is, is that in all of our sin, the struggle, maybe underneath the struggle of sin, is the struggle of idolatry, then we need to have some resources to know how we can begin to identify what our idols are. And I've learned a lot, both from Tim Keller, who's written a book called Counterfeit Gods, and also David Powelson in articles like Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. And both Tim Keller and David Powelson point out that the Greek word the Bible uses for idolatry is the word epithumia, which can be translated something like epi-desire epi or over-desire. So an idol is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. It itself has become too important, too central to our identity and sense of self. And therefore, if that's true, then the way to mine your heart for the things you've made into idols is to follow, these guys say, to follow the epi-emotions in your life and trace them back to what's causing them. So you, you, you find the epi-emotions and you begin to trace those things back to the cause of those emotions and then you're beginning to get to the things that, that the scripture would call idols. Now let me make a warning before I get into this too much. And the warning would be just this, that I'm going to talk about spiritual causes of these epi-emotions that we all live with. The problem is, is there, there's also physical, psychological, psychosomatic, and I've been told, though I've, I don't know that I've ever experienced even hormonal causes to such things. So we have to be careful, because this is complex, these issues are complex, and I'm just coming at it through one lens, and that's the spiritual lens, okay? So I just want to throw that warning out, even as we kind of dive in, uh, to what it, what it means to live with these epi-emotions, and how you would use those things to, to trace back to some of the things that might have gripped your heart. Okay, let me give you a couple of examples. So last week I talked about fear, or anxiety, and I said if you want to, if you, if you follow your fear... It'll lead you to your gods. And we all feel anxious, right? And, and I'm not talking about everyday garden variety anxiety, though we should take seriously the commands of Scripture, I think, which over and over again tell us, do not fear, don't be anxious about anything, right? These things the Bible says. I'm talking about wake you up in the middle of the night, send you to the doctor for Xanax, paralyzing, overwhelming fear and anxiety, epi-anxiety. And fear and anxiety like that is usually a warning sign on the dashboard of your life that something is wrong. That something has become too important to you and it's being threatened and you're afraid of losing it. So, for an example, we're, I, I've been talking about this. We're moving into a new house and it's scary, right? And why is it scary? Well, it's a nicer house. It's a better situation. It's a nice neighborhood, it's close to the church, so there's lots of benefits. So why is it scary? And I think Ashley and I have come, it's scary because it's change. And what's so scary about change? I'm not in control. I'm losing control. Now, I, now this is not normal. Every, you know, that, that, I think, in our life, I mean, please look into us and see. But I really think for us, that's, that's kind of the normal, everyday garden variety anxiety. But I, I'm talking about you know, what places in your life do you experience this kind of epi-anxiety? You know, this kind of shut down, you know, can't get, can't get through it kind of anxiety. And if you want to explore your heart for idols, answer questions like, what do you worry about the most? 
What's your greatest nightmare? What's the fear that wakes you up in the middle of the night that you just can't shake? You start to trace that back, see? And you start to get to the things that your heart, that really matter to your heart. But not just anxiety, also despair. What makes you depressed? What gets you down? What discourages you? See, there's normal discouragement, and then there's epi-discouragement, epi-despair that makes it hard to get out of your pajamas and go out into the day. And often we feel this kind of epi-despair. When we feel it, it's a warning light that something is wrong, that something's become too important, we've lost, we've lost whatever was important to us, or we've failed that thing. And so I have a friend who, who uh, you know, some time ago was... Um, was wanting to go to ministry, going into ministry, and he got an opportunity to preach his first sermon, and it didn't go so well, which happens to most guys who preach their first sermon, right? You imagine this? And I just remember him coming to me and saying, I, I just went back uh, to my house and curled up in the fetal position and just cried all afternoon. See, that, that's an epi, that, do you understand that's an epi discouragement? That's a guy, cause do you, and do you, know this, do you know this about pastors? Most pastors, the philosophy of ministry of most pastors is, just wait until they hear me start to preach. God's going to change everything. That's what we all really believe, right? And it didn't go so well. And he fell apart. So there's this despair, this epi-despair, that means something's become too important, and I've lost it, or I've failed it. And I begin to despair. But not only, not only, see, you can keep going all day, right? Not only anxiety or fear, not only despair, but talk about anger too. And in many ways, it's often right and even loving to experience anger, but I'm talking about epi-anger. I'm talking about violent, profanity-laden, uncontrolled, boiling over, throw something against the wall, sinful kind of anger. And that anger, that kind of anger is usually a warning sign that something is wrong under the hood. That something's become too important and it's being blocked, and so I get angry at whoever or whatever is blocking it. Even if it's my sweet little girl just wanting to tell me about her day and spend a few more minutes with me before she goes to bed. Isn't that gross? What's being blocked? My free time? Well, that's pathetic. It's my will. You know, so you see, you see anger, you see despair, you see fear or anxiety. But there's a, there's a very practical, specific application in the text that's unavoidable that I don't want us to miss. And if you look there in chapter 32, it's this mention of gold. Aaron collects the gold from the people to make the calf. And the commentators point out that this is significant because just a few chapters earlier, there was a similar collection for the tabernacle, the place of worship, God's house. And the gold that they're collecting is probably the plunder that they got from Egypt when they left. Remember, the Egyptians, by the time God was done with the Egyptians, the Egyptians were giving them presents, asking them to leave. Please get out of here. Take my stuff. Here, here are my grandmother's earrings. Please take them. Just leave. Leave us alone. And they carried away all this plunder. And God is gathering the plunder from them to build his house. And yet what we're told here is... They take the plunder, the gold that God has given them through his salvation in Egypt, and instead of using them, using the gold and their possessions and all these things for the construction of his house, they have, they have taken it, collected it, smelted it, and made for themselves this golden calf. And so there's this juxtaposition that we can either use our money and material possessions to worship and serve God, or we can use it to form for ourselves other things. And a lot of people might say money is my idol, but often money is not the idol, it's the currency for the idol. In other words, money is how you 
you get the idol or how you hold on to the idol. And so it's very fascinating. If you think about it, if your idol's safety and security or control, then you use your money in a certain way. You'll take it, you'll put it all in the bank, you'll keep it there for a rainy day so that you can be sure you'll always have what you need. But if your idol is success or image or comfort and pleasure, you'll use your money very differently. You'll spend it to buy nice clothes and fancy cars or homes or go on expensive vacations so that people will look and be impressed so you can just feel like a success. So another way then through, through, through our hearts to this issue of idolatry is what, just to ask this question. What is it easy for you to spend your money on? That's another way of identifying idols. And if you want to understand the way these idols work in our hearts, you have to go back to the first point of the sermon. Remember the problem there. Moses is taking too long, and so they turn away from him and Yahweh and make an idol that will serve their will. They want a God that will follow their rules, a God who will serve them, a God that they can manipulate and control, and that's the allure of an idol. That's the promise that it makes. The seduction of idolatry is that I can find a God that I can control, that will serve my will so that I never have to wait, I'll never have to go without, a God that serves me, not one that demands that I serve him. And money's a great example, right? It's easy to believe that enough money can make me safe, that it can buy me the version of the good life that I buy into. It can give me a name and a reputation. It can make me feel powerful. Oh, it can make me feel godlike. But here's the irony. And please, please, please hear me when I say, here's the irony. If you serve the Lord, and this is really kind of what's, you know, this is the crux of this, of this story. Is if you serve the Lord, he will cross your will. He'll make you wait. Remember 400 years, 40 years in the wilderness? He will cross your will. He will make you wait. He will demand that you submit to him. But if you serve him, you'll be free. He's serving God may feel like slavery, but it is actually he's the only Lord that actually makes you free. But if you serve an idol that you think is going to do your will, it might feel like freedom, but in reality what happens is in the serving of that idol you become a slave. Idols promise control. They promise to serve our will. They promise to give us what we want. They always under-deliver. And that's exactly what Jesus warns about money, isn't it? In Matthew 6 he says, if you put your hope in money, if you look to money instead of God... To get you through and to get things done, it will become your master. You'll become a slave to it. And that can take on many different forms. It'll mean you overwork and then the busyness that comes from overworking. Or you'll choose a profession that will make you a lot of money instead of one that you enjoy or that will be of great benefit to the community and you'll end up miserable. Or literally, if the arrow on the stock market report is up, you're up. And if it's down, you're down. And that's slavery. And it's just one picture. And so when, what Jesus says is true. If you can't serve both God and money, you can't serve God and the golden calf. And this is the problem. This is the problem with our lives. And so what's the cure? And that's the last thing we want to look at this morning before we come to the Lord's table. It's right here in the encounter with God that Moses has immediately after the golden calf. If you look there in, in chapters 33 and 34... He's up on the mountain and God comes to him and says, look, he says, you've got to get back down there. They've really messed up while you've been up here with me. And Moses goes back down and it's not in your, it's not in the part that we read. But what happens in the story is the Levites, when Moses comes down into the camp, the Levites rally around him and they slaughter 3,000 of the men who participated in this whole incident in an act of judgment. 
And then Moses goes right back up to the mountain to try to make things right with the Lord. And this is what God tells him in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 33. And it's my paraphrase. God says something like this to him. Get going to the land of promise. I'll send an angel before you. I'll put you in the land. I'll make you a success, but I'm not going with you. This troubles Moses. He says, God, if you're not going, I'm not going. And then down in verse 18 comes the request. That's the heart of the entire passage. 33, 18, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. So you see, the Lord says, go on to the promised land, Moses. I'll make things go well for you there, but I'm not going to go with you. My glory is not going with you. And Moses' response is, if we don't have your glory, we have nothing. If we don't have your glory, we might as well die out here in the desert. And that's the cure for idolatry, to have an encounter with the glory of God like the encounter Moses has here. We are the flower. The glory of God is the sunshine and the rain. We can't live without it. And the only way to overcome your idols and to be really free is to behold God in his glory. Isn't that what Paul says in the passage Jeff read in 2 Corinthians? We all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. And so the energy for obedience in the Christian life comes from an experience of God's glory. An encounter, just like the encounter Moses has here in chapters 33 and 34. So let me finish by answering these two questions. And then we'll come to the communion table. And the two questions are this, okay? First, what does it mean to behold God in his glory? What is this experience of God's glory that Moses has here? And then secondly, what is the, what is the substance of the glory that Moses experienced? What is it about God's glory uh, that can change you. So let me, just, let me just go to those two things and then we'll be done. First, what does it mean to behold God's glory? Paul says, beholding the glory were transformed. And the Hebrew word for glory means something like weight or matter. So to have an experience of God's glory means he begins to matter to you in a way he didn't before. He's no longer peripheral in your life. He matters. But it also means that something is happening in your heart that to make the truth of who God is real to you in a way that it's never been real to you before. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said that for most people, knowledge of God, uh, at the end of the day, really is just theoretical. That was his word. He said, he said um, most people's knowledge of God is just theoretical knowledge, but there's a difference between having an opinion about God's holiness and love and having what he called a sense of his holiness and love. And by sense, he, mean, he meant a practical, real subjective, personal, sensory even, experience of God's holiness and love. Edward said, if you've you've never tasted honey, particularly wildflower honey in North Carolina, anybody, can I get an amen on that? You know what I'm talking about? You can get it on the Blue Ridge Parkway, you know what I'm talking about? Right? If you've never tasted that, you might know that it's sweet. But that kind of knowledge is different from tasting it. It's hearsay until you experience it firsthand. And so to behold the glory of God as Moses did here is to pass beyond the theoretical to a personal, practical, even sensory knowledge of who God is. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, what's, what's that mean? So to encounter glory means that who God is becomes real to you in a way that it never was before. His goodness becomes weighty. It bores down into the center of your life until it is your reality, until you begin to taste it. A few years ago, I, got to, I, got, I was invited to go to a shuttle launch at Cape Canaveral. VIP section. 
Thank you, Erica, for laughing. That was supposed to be funny. Uh, I grew up in Central Florida, uh, and, uh, and so I, I've seen many shuttle launches, but this was, the, we got to go out with the VIPs, not because I was a VIP, I just happened to know a VIP and got to go along with them, about two miles from the launch site or whatever, and I was told it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, you have to do it, and now I know why it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, because once you've done it, you'll never, ever do it again. It took us eight hours to get home. 528 was a parking lot, and we got home at like four o'clock in the morning anyway. Because I grew up here, I'd seen so many launches. I'd watch them on TV in elementary school. It was always the drill. I don't know if they still do that. Well, we don't, they, there's not as many. We would go outside and we'd watch it, right? And so I have this experience of these launches. And I'd read all the information about the science of it. But it was something, I can tell you, to be there, to feel the earth shake, to feel your insides shake and to be blinded by the blazing light of the engines. It was unbelievable. I have it on video. And in the background of the video, it's, it's cute. Canaan was much younger. He was a small child. And as this thing is taking off and, and the, the engines are rumbling, you can hear Canaan. I think he was on my shoulders or right behind me. He goes, wow! And that was kind of the, you know, the whole crowd did that. And that's it, see? I had seen, but I'd never seen. I'd known... I knew, but I, I didn't know. And to behold the glory of the Lord means you have that kind of experience, that you begin to really know, you begin to really see. Who God is begins to shake your insides. It begins, you're, you're blinded. You're blinded. Jeff, Jeff talked about God shining his light into our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It means you come to a place where his glory and his beauty, they, they blind you. And that's what happened to Moses on top of that mountain, and that's what can happen to us too. But the second thing is, if that's what the experience of glory is that we're, that we're called to here, what is the glory? We need to know what it is too, and you have to pay close attention to the inter- interchange between Moses and the Lord. Look at Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Moses says, please show me your glory, verse 18, and God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So according to the text... In God's mind, his glory is his goodness. And to see his goodness is to see his glory. And we're not left to wonder what he means by this because as his, as his goodness passes by Moses, there's a proclamation, 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And this is the essence of God's glory. He is compassionate and gracious and forgiving and yet he will never let the guilty go unpunished. God is too good to, to not forgive sin, but he's too good to just let sin go unpunished either. And that's the tension within his goodness where we see his glories. Let me ask you this question. Why doesn't God destroy Israel? This is a pretty serious thing here in Exodus 32. Why doesn't he destroy them? I mean, sure, 3,000 men die. But why doesn't God wipe them out like they deserve, like we deserve? He continues on with them, and it sets up this ongoing tension in the narrative. They keep getting themselves into trouble, and what happens is over and over again, Moses has to keep getting them out. He goes up and he makes intercession, and the Lord forgives because of Moses' prayers, and and Moses is being a mediator for them. And that's exactly what happens here. In verse 30 of chapter 32, we're told the next day, Moses says to them, you've sinned a great sin, and now I will, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin, verse 30. And then look, this, I mean, this is amazing. Look at Moses' prayer in verse 32. He says, the people, Lord, have sinned a great sin. Please forgive them, but if not, then blot me out of your book that you've written. Do you understand what that means? 
Moses is saying, I know they deserve to be punished, but please, if it comes to that, please punish me, not them. Let their punishment fall on me. Condemn me so you can forgive them. Blot me out of your book. I'll take hell so that they can have heaven. And last week I said Moses was a type of Jesus Christ in his role as Israel's mediator. He points to Jesus in here maybe more clearly and powerfully than anywhere else because, of course, Moses prayed, blot me out, and God refused his offer. He didn't blot Moses out. He didn't blot the Israelites either. He showed them mercy. He kept on with them, and the reason they got mercy instead of judgment is because centuries later, the true and better Moses would come. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he would pray, blot me out. Let their sins be counted against me. Condemn me so that you can forgive them, but this time God wouldn't refuse. And on the cross, Jesus was blotted out. The sword of God's wrath was coming down on us, and Jesus stepped in front and took the blow so that we might be spared like all the heroes and heroines and all the stories we love and even recent Disney animation movies. I've been told I give things away, so I'm being careful. And in his death, the two parts of God's goodness meet. Because Jesus died on the cross, God can forgive sins. He can be perfectly compassionate and forgiving. And because he died and sin was paid for, he can be perfectly just. And that's the glory. And so to conclude, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 makes the point that there's so much glory revealed to Moses that his face literally began to shine. Almost like a sunburn for kids. Moses was physically transformed by this experience. But that was the law. That was the ministry of condemnation. Obey and you'll live. Disobey and you'll die. But leaving us without the power and the resources to obey. If there's that much glory in the law, then what Paul's saying there is, there's so much more in the gospel. The ministry of righteousness. Jesus became sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And obey him from the heart because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's so much better. So like Moses, when we begin to behold the glory of Jesus in the gospel, we'll be transformed. And if you want some practical examples, go back to the diagnostics. You won't be anxious. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Idols make promises but never come through, but Jesus comes through. Behold his great love for you and Moses' love for his people. Blot me out. See, you can trust him when he says to you, don't be anxious, I got this. And if you live... With that kind of trust, you wouldn't need money to make you feel safe. And so you could be generous instead of overspending and oversaving. You wouldn't need people to make you feel safe. You'd be free to love them. See see how this works? A second example, you won't be despairing. Behold the glory of the gospel and you won't be afraid of failure. God doesn't love you because you're successful at work or because you have great kids. That doesn't make you a somebody in the gospel. You get a righteousness that has nothing to do with your performance. So if your career takes a nosedive or your kids start to go a little crazy, you don't have to sink into despair. You can be sad, but not the kind of sadness that puts you on the, on the sidelines. You can be sad and keep going. I could go on, but let's just finish this. How? How does this happen? Paul says, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. Unveiled faces. That means that we need God to come and work in our hearts to help us see. Beholding is a work of the Spirit. So like Moses, we pray, please show me your glory. And my question to you, is that your prayer this morning? As we come to this table now, make that your prayer. Make this your prayer. Jesus, show me your glory. Jesus, in this bread and this cup, cause me to taste and see 
that you are good, and may it be so powerful that it changes me. So let's pray that, can we? Let's pray. Father, what glory there is in the revelation of your Son. We marvel at him, and so would you come even as we continue in worship together, as we gather around this table to celebrate your great love for us, Lord Jesus, that you were blotted out, that we might be written in the Lamb's book of life, that you were cursed and crushed, that we might be healed. Oh, may we marvel at that, and may you fill our hearts with hope and joy that would overcome and outlast any idol or any promise that the the idols of our hearts might make to us. Come and heal us as we gather around this table and make us obedient that we might glorify and honor you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.